All right, turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to pick up in verse 9 and read to the end of the chapter. This is our last sermon about the church. And then we're going to pick up in John 18. So for last time, let's get a definition of the church. The church is the people of God, ordered by the Word of God, participating in the covenant of God. Now, last week, we talked about that last line. That participating in God's covenant is what sustains us in times of opposition. And as long as the church is in the world, guess what we will have? Opposition. Always. But that participating in God's covenant is also the substance of our hope. That we look forward to the fulfillment of God's promises where we will participate in His covenant and His presence forever. That's our hope. And we need hope today. Easy tasks that have no end are a burden. I can remember when I worked at RTS, uh, I had to organize all the files of graduates for the last 40 plus years. Easy, isn't it? It's easy putting things in alphabetical order. It was a burdensome task because it felt like there was no end. If that's true for easy tasks, what about hard tasks? Like the church living in a world of opposition. It's a burden. We need a hope. A living hope. A certain hope. If we're going to continue in the world. What's that hope? We'll pick it up in our sermon in a sentence. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Let's pray. We'll read. Heavenly Father. We are used to seeing the same thing every day we wake up feeling the same threats, facing the same opposition. But Lord, like John, I pray that you would give us a heavenly vision this morning of the world as it is and as it will be, that we may be sustained. So Father, let your word engender in us a living hope. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to pick up in chapter 7, verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? 
clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word this morning. And what did we see here in Revelation? Let me just say something about Revelation. It is a book as mysterious as it is misinterpreted. So what can we make clear today that will be helpful for us as a church? We can summarize it in two words. Jesus wins. But as we zoom into our passage, what do we see at play? Revelation is a book that tells the same story seven times. Each time the story is a little bit different with a little bit bigger climax and a little bit better conclusion. This particular section of Revelation chapter 1 to chapter 11 deals with the church's opposition to the world. And in ever increasingly hostility, John says, Jesus wins. Now look at our passage. The Lamb takes the seal. There's seven seals. First, there's war. Second, division. Third, economic downturn. Fourth, famine and pestilence. Fifth, the blood-curdling screams of martyrdom. Sixth, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Tell me something. Does any of that sound familiar? It should, because it has been true of the church in every generation. But in each generation, the climax has been bigger, and we've gotten closer and closer to the conclusion. Can you feel it? Can you feel it in your bones? I hear of it every day. I hear fear in the hearts of people. I hear discouragement. But it should not be so. Rising alongside this terror in the book of Revelation, John hears of 144,000. When he sees, he sees a multitude that cannot be numbered. They're sealed. They're sealed by the Holy Spirit. They're preserved. They're protected by the God who sits on the throne. In the midst of pandemonium, the church is preserved until she hears those blessed words, mission accomplished. Now John is writing this to churches that are suffering. 
How did this message function in the life of that church? How does it function for us? What do the words mission accomplished mean to us? Let me say two things. One, mission accomplished means the church is gathered together. Notice what John says. He says, I looked, I saw a multitude that could not be numbered. Every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and the Lamb, clothed in white with palm branches in their hands. Isn't this the picture we wanted to see in the beginning? In our first sermon on the church, I know you all remember it, we said the mission of the church was to go, to gather, and to grow the people of God. Now what do we see right here? That very thing. We need that encouragement. We look at the mission of the church and we say, it's too big, I'm too small, how can we pull this off? And yet in our passage, there it is. We see the church dispersed is gathered. We make a distinction between what is called the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is all those professing men who profess faith in Jesus Christ in a particular time and a particular place. The visible church is bound by time and space. And we know this intrinsically. Look at this church. We're about to celebrate 195 years. The mission of the church has spread us out chronologically. We support missions with our offerings so that we can support the work of the church geographically around the world. But there also exists a visible church, an invisible church, composed of all of those the Father has chosen before time and space began. And we see this in Revelation. Do you see any barriers? Are they, are they separated by miles? Are they separated by days? Though it says, those who are as far as the east from the west, geographically as far apart as possible, have come together with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all those believers through time are gathered around the throne of God. Do you know what we call that? Mission accomplished. The church divided is gathered. In one of our hymns, we sing that by schisms, the church is rent asunder by heresies distressed. Have you been following the United Methodist Church? It has been devastating to see what's happening in that denomination. But this has always been the message of Jesus. We remember the parable of the wheat and tares, don't we? The farmer goes out and he sows his wheat. The enemy comes out and he sows some tares. And when they sprout, the, the servants are distressed. What do we do? How do we handle this problem? 
And what is the farmer's answer? Wait until harvest. We'll take the chaff, we'll throw it in the fire, we'll band the wheat together. Jesus says this is how the church will be forever. You read the book of Genesis, you're a family as small as Noah, and guess what? There will be division. You're a church as long, as big as the nation of ancient Israel, and guess what? There will be division. And yet look at Revelation. Do you see division? Do you see schism, heresy, hypocrisy, haters, fakers, anything? I see none of it. I see a church clothed in white, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, one and united together around the throne of God. Do you know what we call that? Mission accomplished. Finally, the church is not dispersed, the church is not divided, and the church is not distracted. Elders and angels, living creatures and living Christians are all worshiping around the throne of God. Now we're Presbyterian. We all say, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Do we always do that? Some of us get distracted. Maybe you're distracted by the pinging of the fan. Maybe you're distracted by the sweat running down your forehead this morning. We get distracted. Churches get distracted. Churches want to deal, get involved in politics and forget their mission. They want to get involved in social justice and forget their mission. They want to chase whatever boogeyman is current and forget their mission. It happens. We get distracted. But notice what our passage says. It says, Amen. Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, and so forth. That's a bad translation. The Greek actually says, Amen. The blessing, the glory, the wisdom, the thanksgiving, the honor, the power, the might, be to our God forever and ever. These are not a people distracted by some glory, a wisdom, a thanksgiving, a blessing. They have traced these things to their very source. Full of joy, fulfilled in every way, they are gathered around the throne of God. Do you know what I call that? Mission accomplished. But alongside being gathered, what else do we see? We see that the church that is gathered in verses 9 through 12 is perfected in verses 13 through 17. Notice how they're perfect. They're perfectly saved out of the great tribulation. John is not referring to one great climactic event. John is referring to all the suffering that fills the Christian life. Look at John. John's life has been punctuated by suffering. 
Look at the life of Jesus. It was suffering from womb to tomb. Look at the church, the body of Christ. She has endured suffering from her very formation outside the Garden of Eden. She has endured wars, division, poverty, pestilence, persecution, all of it. Do you see any of that in our passage? I do not. Let me be very clear on something. We are saved the moment we believe. We call that justification. We are being saved. We call that sanctification. We will be saved. We call that glorification. As Jesus suffered between womb and tomb and was resurrected, ascended to heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father, far above His assailants, far above His persecutors, so will we be as a church. There will be no more traps, no more snares, no more devils, no more devices, no more opposition, no more sin, no more war, no more division, no more poverty, no more pestilence, no more persecution, no more. The church will be perfectly saved. Do you know what I call that? Mission accomplished. Not only perfectly saved, the church will be perfectly sheltered. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more sun, no more scorching heat, no more air conditions going out. Can I get an amen? Hey. That is one that we as Southerners should really understand right now. No more scorching heat. Now we experience deliverance from this in part, don't we? Jesus is our bread of life. The Spirit comes to us as living waters. God keeps His hand over us like the cloud that followed Israel through the wilderness and shaded them from the sun. Though we have shade, guess what? We still sweat, don't we? But in heaven, no more. We enjoy all, a lot of this already in our earthly tent, but it's nothing compared to the home that is being built for us with all the amenities and the comforts that belong to His presence. We call that mission accomplished. With that perfect shelter, we are perfectly shepherded. Notice it says, the Lamb will be our shepherd. You notice John's play on words right there? The Lamb will be our shepherd. Who knows what the flock needs better than the Lamb? The Lamb knows where all the green pastures are. He knows where there is still water. He knows how to restore our soul. He will keep us like a shepherd keeps his flock. He's ransomed us, redeemed us from hands too strong for us. As David defeated the bear and the lion to protect his sheep, so Jesus Christ will do far better. Slain sin, the devil, and death. Beyond the valley of death, there will be no fiend, there will be no foe, there will be no doubt, there will be no discouragement, 
there will be the Lamb. Now isn't that better than what our eyes can see? John looks at the world awash in bloodshed and violence. We open our eyes and turn on WLBT and guess what we see? A world awash in bloodshed and violence. John sees sin is paraded in the streets. John sees injustice. What do we see? The same thing. And yet John lifts up his eyes and he sees glory, he sees worship, he sees rest for the gathered and perfected church. Let me ask a question. Does not that vision give us hope? In the 20th century, there was a playwright named Samuel Beckett. He wrote a play called Waiting for Godot. This play is said to have no beginning and no end, only a middle. It's about two idiots that are at a tree and they don't know how they got there, but they're waiting for Godot. And they fill their days with trifles and silliness and absurdity. And they go to sleep. Godot does not come. When they wake up in the morning, the leafless tree is full of leaves. Days have passed. How many days? It doesn't matter because it's silly. It's absurd. It's a waste of time. And they continue the same thing day after day. Is that how we want to live our life? No beginning, no end, wasting our life, waiting for someone who will never come. That sounds miserable, doesn't it? Do we want to waste our days in silliness and squalor? Because we're unmoored from our beginnings and we have no hope for the end? To drift along in an absurd and meaningless existence as our breath fades and our wretched days end with a sigh? There's got to be more to life than this. I think children, children have a better grasp on what hope is. There's a story of these kids that live in a grayed-out dystopian world when two stepbrothers come and they sing a song of hope. And this song of hope is put in the language of a child. I want you to hear it. Summer, where every single moment is worth its weight in gold. Summer, where the world's best story is waiting to be told. It's ice cream cones and cherry sodas dripping down your chin. Summer, where do we begin? The very hope of summer and the endless possibilities that await these children bring color to a gray world. For our kids, they give them hope and excitement. It makes the school day less dreary, less absurd. And the closer summer gets, the more their hope and their joy is animated, the lighter their burdens become. John's vision, our hope, our mission accomplished is closer today than when we first 
believed. Does it not animate us with hope? We read Paul, 1 Corinthians is the longest chapter in the Bible dedicated to the resurrection. And when Paul gets done, he says this, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your mission will be accomplished. Your labor is worthwhile. Now when Paul finishes the discussion of the resurrection, do you know what Paul talks about next? Now concerning the collection for the saints, Paul discusses giving. Do you see the connection here? Paul says, we can give of earthly goods. We have a heavenly hope. Jesus says, we can put our hands to the plow and not look back because we have a heavenly hope. Hebrews says, we can suffer persecution, and imprisonment because we have hope. We have hope. For the whole one person here who is younger, you're it today. We don't have to dilly-dally around with our time. We have certainty this mission will be accomplished. Even from a young age, what we do matters. For us, in the middle of life, I'm not going to number that in case some of you get offended. Those in the middle of life, why do we busy ourselves with things that do not profit? We spend our times in things that our, our children will not want, and in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, we will not be able to enjoy. But we have a hope that is assured. When we have grown old, why do we let our days pass by? Paul does not detail a retirement plan for Christians. Old age does not mean easy living. Old age means hope is nearer. That joy should be more tangible. That burdens should be lighter. That nearness raises our expectations. Let that hope of triumph overcome our discouragement. Let us, let it drive us heavenward. In closing, we find ourselves both at the end of sweats and at the end of a sermon series. We have spent the last 12 weeks talking about the church. Heaven is near but our labor is not at an end. We are called to labor and to get our affairs in order while we have time. If you've sat here for 12 weeks and you've given me your amens and your attaboys at the door, today's a day to pony up. If you've not joined the church, today's a good day. Jesus has prepared for us a church now that we may enjoy a slice of heaven that we may be protected and preserved and sealed for the day when He comes. 
How do you join the church? It's very easy. Do you believe in Jesus? Come talk to me. If you've joined the church, the time is now. Mission accomplished is certain. This should not drive us to laziness. This should drive us to labor. We have things to do. We have a gospel to spread. We have people and a property and a presbytery to support. Let the assurance of our accomplishment drive you to action. And I'm going to add one last aside. This is extra. We die, believe it or not, most of us probably have family that is not Christian. They will not be in heaven. But the church will be. You see the people around this room? Blood is thicker than water, but the Spirit is thicker than both. This church, God has put it together for a particular reason, a particular purpose. If you have gleaned anything from the last 12 weeks of sermons, it is that Jesus loves the church. It is a gift. Let us treat it that way. Fair enough? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am thankful for your church. I am thankful for the church here that you have preserved for generations. I am thankful for the church that has endured from Genesis chapter 4 onward. I am thankful that I have, that we have an assurance that it will persevere, that you will preserve it, and that it will be made whole. Lord, may we see more and more of that hope realized here. May you strengthen your church in all ways. Gather us, grow us, perfect us, prepare us for that day. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.